When I was in high school, our basketball team would take a retreat at the beginning of every basketball season. And on this retreat, there'd be a lot of sharing meals together and goofing around. We'd play games, and then in the middle of all that, there'd be a little bit of basketball practice that happened. But I remember those retreats so well because of what happened my freshman year around a campfire. So at this campfire, I had a good friend named Kurt Hamill. And some of you might know Kurt. Kurt grew up here at this church. And this story probably will not surprise you when you hear it happen to Kurt. But Kurt decided around this campfire to put a full can of pop into the fire. And I honestly can't remember if somebody told him to do this or if he came up with this idea on his own. But I know that this closed can of pop sat there for a few minutes and nothing happened. But then all of a sudden, that can of pop shot out of the fire like a rocket, nearly missing the house behind us. And I was inside the house at the time, and the windows shook, and it sounded like an explosion happened outside. Now, I learned a few things that day. First of all, I learned that if you do something like that, you're probably going to have to run sprints the next practice. <laughs> I also learned a lot about pressure. Because, and many of you might know this if, if you've studied science at all, but pop has a gas called carbon dioxide in, in it. And as gas expands when it's heated up, it needs a place to escape. So as that pressure started to build inside the can, it's no surprise to many of you that eventually it exploded. Now I share that with you today because we're going to look at two more letters that were written to churches located in Asia in the early first century. And we need to remember that these churches were in the fire, much like that can of pop was in the fire. They were under immense pressure to bend their knee to the Roman Empire. And in both of these letters we read today, I hope you get the sense of the pressure that was building in these churches in the early first century. The letter came at just the right time to help them to have the strength that they needed, the hope that they needed to endure when things started to heat up. But as we prepare to read these letters today, I also want you to know that these letters were written to churches, not just individuals. They were meant to be read out loud in the middle of a congregation like ours, not in the privacy of one's own home. And this was because the Christian life is one of community. Eugene Peterson says it this way, the life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narrative is highly personal, but it's never merely individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, a nation, church. And if you think about it, this is true of the entire story that God is telling. <clears throat> uh, what are you doing there, Upstreet Tyler? Well, I know that there are kids in the room today, so I thought I'd help you out from time to time. You know, for those times where you get a little bit, how do I say this, boring? Hey, I am not boring. <sighs> sure you're not. Whatever, but if you wanna help us out, I'll give you 10 seconds to come up with as many ways that the Bible talks about community that you can think of. Hey, that sounds good to me. You tell me when to go. Ready, go. Okay, uh, let's see. It's not good for man to be alone. Um, God told Abraham he'd make his family into a great nation. In the New Testament, there is, let us not forsake meeting together. Jesus said, our Father in heaven, oh, love your neighbor and uh, bear one another's burden. Time. 
Well, I'll see you guys a little bit later. <laughs> well, I don't clap for him. Don't clap for him. <clears throat> I'm sorry about the interruption, but I think you get the point. That list goes on and on and on throughout Scripture. And Jesus, as he's wrapping things up, the assumption once again is that the revelation would be read in the midst of the church. And this is huge because it would have been easier for those early Christians to live out their faith on their own. Gathering together was dangerous and people were risking their lives to do so. A private faith in the comfort of one's own home would have been more convenient and safe than gathering. So why does this matter? Well, I know that there's times in my own life where I've thought, man, wouldn't it be easier if I could just leave messy people behind, if I could leave the temptations of the world behind and go and just live in the mountains somewhere where every morning I could wake up and take in the glory of God. Man, my walk with Christ would flourish if that was the case, right? We've all been there. We've all said, if it wasn't for the church, things would be easier. If I could just follow Jesus, then everything would be okay. But the gospel constantly pushes against this. Scripture tells us that we are meant to be living a life connected with one another. And the early church facing this intense pressure needed one another. We need one another. So as we read these letters today, understanding that listening to these words as a part of a community of faith is truly important. So let's start with the letter to the church in Smyrna. And I actually have a messenger here today that can bring that letter to me. So if my first messenger would be willing to come up here and bring us the letter, that would be super helpful. All right, here we, here we go. Thank you so much. Audrey is our first messenger today. You did great. Thanks so much, Audrey. All right, I'm going to read this letter. And as I do this, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, that's where we're going to be today. All right, here it is. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what, what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. When I read this letter, it's clear that Jesus has a remarkable understanding of what's happening within this church. And he tailors his letters specifically for that group of people. So like in the first sentence, where he says that these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life again. We can make the connection that this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who died and came back to life again. But I think it's important for us to realize that Smyrna was a city that had died and came back to life as well. 700 years before this letter was written, old Smyrna had been destroyed and had laid in ruins for three centuries. And so the city of Smyrna that John was now writing to had literally risen from the dead. So it's like Jesus is saying, 
hey, Smyrna, I know that your city has died and risen again. So have I. So listen up. I have something to share with you. And then he dives deeper into what exactly is going on in this church at that time. He precisely identifies the pressure that they're feeling under the fire of Roman rule. And I want you to feel that pressure rising for the next few minutes. I want you to get a sense of what they're going through. And then at the end of that time together, we'll see how Jesus directed the church to release the pressure that they were feeling. So first Jesus says, I know your afflictions and poverty. I see the persecution that you're going through. I'm not blind to it. I get it. You're in the fire right now. And if you look at the makeup of this church at the time, we get a pretty clear picture of the opposition that they're facing. The Roman Empire wanted everyone to worship their gods, or better yet, the emperor himself. And there was really only one exception to this rule. That was the Jewish people. Romans knew that Jews were monotheistic, meaning that they only worshiped one God. And so they made an exception saying that Jews could worship their one God as long as they paid the Roman taxes. Well, this was great, but Christians were not included in this exception. And that means a couple of things. First of all, Smyrna, even though it had a booming commerce, were not letting Christians participate in it. And so you have Christians struggling to survive. While most people in the city were rich, the Smyrna Christians were struggling to put food on the table. And then to top it all off, the Jews that we see in the city were reporting Christians to the authorities, causing them to face even more persecution. So because Christians would not bow down to Roman gods, they were facing persecution from the Romans. And because Christians were no longer by Jewish traditions, the Jews were turning them over as well. Do you feel the pressure that's building around them? That they have nowhere to turn. Everyone seems to be against them, and there's this pressure building that causes Christians to be on the brink of exploding, to be like that pop can that's sitting on the fire, waiting to shoot out like a missile. And this is the conflict that the Church of Smyrna is facing. It could have consumed them. It could have made them want to give up, give in, quit. And I know that Bachelor Creek does not currently face the same pressure that this church in Smyrna was facing. But it doesn't mean that we can't. And it doesn't mean that we're not facing our own tribulations as we speak. So Jesus has a word for us, just like he had a word for the church in Smyrna. He says, I see you, church. I see the relationship that's falling apart. I see the secret sin that's destroying you from the inside out. I see the addiction of a loved one that keeps you up at night. I see the strain your job is having on your family. I see the temptation you have to cheat, to get ahead. I, I see the cultural shifts that are all around you. I see how fear has undermined your faith. I see it, I get it, I understand it better than anyone else ever will. And yet, in the middle of the fire, when the pressure is building, I have a word for you, church. So here are a few things that Jesus says to us while we're under pressure. When we're in the fire, Jesus says, don't forget the provision in the middle of the pain. 
In verse, verse 9, Jesus says, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. Jesus doesn't want us to miss the fact that he's still present even in our hardest times. To the church, he says, I know everything that you're going through, and yet you're still rich. Don't miss that. Paul says a similar thing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He shares about the tribulations that we sometimes face as a people. But he finishes by saying, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. So yes, there might be pain in one area of your life. But I bet if you looked close enough, you could find the good as well. Because God is present. God is with us. God will continue to provide even when we're struggling. And the challenge is for us to focus on that provision, even in the midst of the pain. Are we going to hold on tighter to him during those times? Or are we going to loosen our grip? Jesus also says, while we're in the fire, don't let fear keep you from faithfulness. In verse 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And if I'm honest with you today, I wish that after he said that, he would have said something like, because you're not going to have to suffer. We don't like to suffer, do we? We hate it. We would do anything that we could to avoid it. And yet, that's not what Jesus says here. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He realizes that we live in a fallen world and that there is going to be suffering. But he challenges the church to face that suffering head on. He says we need to keep pushing through the suffering because we know that God is with us and that there is a time limit to suffering. John writes that suffering will last 10 days, which didn't mean a literal 10 days, like the church would suffer for this definite amount of time and then it would be over. But it did mean that the 11th day would come, that suffering has an end because Jesus has overcome the grave. And we can hold on now knowing that the pressure is not going to last forever. And then finally, don't give up because victory is coming. Revelation is a book that requires us as listeners to look beyond the here and the now, which can be really hard for us to do. But the imagery found throughout Revelation is meant to jolt us out of our slumber. These images that we see that are so confusing to us through time are supposed to make us stop and, and wake up from our sleepwalking. And Jesus' message to the church over and over again in the book of Revelation is to look beyond your suffering. He's saying, I have overcome the world, and you will too. That's my promise to you, church. And I know that he's saying to the church of Smyrna and to the church of Bachelor Creek, don't give up. Keep pushing forward. I've overcome the suffering, you will too, and if we're faithful till the end, we'll receive the crown of life. If you're like me, we respond to that in a lot of different ways. There's times where I'll say, yeah, but what if I can't do it anymore? To that, Jesus says, be faithful. Yeah, but what, what if I can't feel you with me anymore? I don't feel you next to me in the fire. Jesus says, be faithful. Yeah, but what if... I want to take the easy way out. Everybody else is. Why can't I? Jesus says, be faithful. 
yeah, but what if the fire gets too hot? What if the pressure builds too much around me? Jesus says, be faithful. That's the charge, church. Be faithful until the end. I think they get it, Tyler, especially all of the upstreet kids out there today, because we've been talking about grit all month long. And grit is refusing to give up when life gets hard. That fits pretty good with what the church of Smyrna was going through, doesn't it? They needed grit, and that grit came from understanding that God would see them through. Anyways, I was thinking about all this pressure that you've been talking about today, and it really does seem like Jesus gives us some ways to release the pressure when it starts to close in on us, which got me thinking. Science experiment! Now, when I put these Mentos into this Coke bottle, a chemical reaction will occur, and pressure will start to build. But unlike your friend's pop can, the pressure can escape through the top of the bottle. And where does the pressure escape? Up. It goes up. And the same is true for us. When we face pressure, we can look up. We can look beyond our suffering because God is ultimately in control. Are you ready for this? Let's try it. Here we go. Take that off. We got our Mentos. Here we go. Let's see what happens. Oh, no! Ah! Oh! Yes! The pressure goes up, and we can look up, too. That guy's crazy, but he does make a good point. When we're facing pressure, we can look up. We can look beyond the here and now and focus on Jesus, who has overcome the grave. All right, let's get into our second letter. Before we do that, I think there's something else that we need to focus on, though. So the first letter, when we read it, we talked about how it was meant to be read in the context of the church. And now I think it's also important for us to remember that a key role of the church body is listening. Every one of John's letters to these seven churches contains a line that says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Because churches were meant to be listening posts. This is one place where we can intentionally come to hear God's word. But we're not merely supposed to hear God's word. We're supposed to listen to it. There's a difference, and we all know it, especially if we have kids. Let me take it from here, Tyler. Kids, there have oh. probably been times where you have heard your parents say something, but even though you heard them say it, it doesn't mean you actually listen. It looks like this. You're playing video games with your Thursday night squad. And mom yells from the kitchen, hey, honey, can you take out the trash? And you hear what your mom says, kind of. So you say back to her, yeah, sure, mom. And yet you keep playing video games. You heard your mom, right? But you didn't listen to her. There's a big difference. That's exactly what I'm saying, Upstreet Me. As Jesus followers, we're called to not only listen, or to not only hear, but also to listen. And, th and these letters, through John's vision, John, or Jesus is saying, listen up, church. Here's what it looks like to live in the world, but not be of the world. So where's my second messenger at? I need that next letter brought up here. Ah, Lucas has got it for us. Thank you so much, Lucas. Great job, buddy. There we go. All right, we're going to read this one together, too. This will be... And Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, if you want to follow along with this letter. To the angel 
of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Only known to the one who receives it. Once again, Jesus shows an accurate understanding of everything that's going on in this particular congregation. And he addresses a combination of social situations that they're facing, but also religious situations outside of the church. And it's important for us to know that Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. So this was the capital city of Rome and Asia. And in turn, it was a very sophisticated city and the Greek culture or the Greek center of culture and education. So this is why Jesus describes himself as the double-edged sword to the church in Pergamum. He's saying, look, I know that you're in the middle of the Roman Empire who wields its power with the sword, but I am the one who is ruling. I'm the one who holds the double-edged sword. Then Jesus goes on to share with Pergamum exactly what they're going through, just like he did in Smyrna. He talks about how Satan has his throne there and that this is a city where Satan lives. And then he goes on to point back to an Old Testament story about Balaam and Balak who enticed the Israelites to sin. And so I wanna take a minute or two to look at these images. So first off, Satan. Sometimes when we think of Satan, we picture him as this little red guy with pointy ears and a long tail that holds a pitchfork and sits on your shoulder and tells you to do bad things. But we don't make the connection that Satan attacks us in a multitude of ways. He can attack quietly and under the radar, but he can also attack overtly and through power structures. And he's attacking in both ways in the city of Pergamum. He's seated on the throne in Pergamum, meaning that he's using the power of, Roman, of the Roman Empire to persecute Jesus' followers. But he's also living quietly in the city. He's working through the pressures of a non-Christian society to try to draw Christians away. He's persecuting, and he's also seducing. And in the middle of this persecution and seduction, Jesus commends the church for remaining true to him. While Satan's on the prowl, he praises their faithfulness in the middle of an unfaithful city. But the interesting thing is he doesn't stop there with Pergamum. He knows that there's more to address in this church. Which brings us to the story of Balaam and a group of people called the Nicolaitans. So in the book of Numbers, if you go back to the Old Testament, we have this story about Balak, who was the king of Moab at the time. And he was scared of God's people, the Israelites, because they had grown into a powerful nation. So he calls a prophet named Balaam to call down a curse 
on the Israelites. Well, Balaam says to Balak, I can't curse the Israelites. All I can do is speak what God tells me to speak. And so instead of cursing the Israelites, Balaam actually blesses them. And if I were telling this story in kids' church sometimes, that's usually where the story would stop. And maybe we would be focusing more on Balaam's donkey that talks to him in the middle of that story as opposed to what happens next. But Balaam actually later on in the story goes back to Balak and he says, hey, if you really want to defeat the Israelites, all you have to do is seduce them with the Moabite women. And as soon as they let that sin creep into their lives, they'll fall apart. They'll completely turn away from their God. And that's exactly what happens. So that brings us to these Nicolaitans who were in Pergamum. Because the Nicolaitans were using the same tactics as Balaam in the Old Testament. They were leading people astray with their teachings. They were urging Jesus followers to eat food sacrificed to idols and to give in to sexual immorality. And unfortunately, Christians in Pergamum were falling for that temptation. They started to let that sin creep into their lives. They'd been compromising their faith with the temptations of the world. And Jesus is very direct with the church. He tells them, you need to repent of this before it's too late. But compromise seems like such a little thing, doesn't it? Like we actually see it in a good way a lot of times. Think about if you have a, a little argument with your spouse and you both decide, you know what, we'll compromise on this. We'll both give a little bit to come to an agreement. So there's this blending of two different things to become something completely new. But when it comes to faith, there are certain things that we should never compromise on. I know exactly what you're talking about, Tyler. Let me help. This blob of paint represents the beliefs of Jesus followers. And this blob of paint over here represents the beliefs of the Nicolaitans. Now, as you can see, these are two completely different colors. They're separate from one another. And when you start to mix the two together, when you take a little bit of the Nicolaitans' beliefs and mix it with the Jesus follower beliefs, you start to get something completely new. It's no longer the beliefs of Jesus followers. This is a Jesus plus religion. And the more of the false God beliefs that you add in to what Jesus followers are already believing, the more you start to blot out the truth of the gospel. Look at this. It's disgusting. And yet, when we compromise our faith, it leads us away from Jesus. It makes us look like what we were never intended to be. I think I know what he's trying to say, and that is that Jesus was telling the church in Pergamum and is telling Bachelor Creek that it's not okay to compromise. That as we start to comp compromise, we distort the true picture of the gospel. It looks different than the way it was intended to look. And so, since we're not living in Pergamum, the question becomes, do we, here at Bachelor Creek, give in to the temptations of the world like the Christians in Pergamum? And I would have to guess that we would say the answer to that is yes, more times than we'd like to admit. We say, what's the harm in doing this anyways? I can love Jesus and enjoy the pleasures of the world. Everyone else is doing it. Why can't I? What's the big deal? And even though we don't have idol feasts like Pergamum, our town does have cheating. 
and sexual sin. It has gossiping, lying, addiction, pornography. The list goes on and on. And yet, unfortunately, sometimes we like to tolerate sin in our own lives. And once again, Jesus has a word to say to us, church. And the first word that he has to say is stop minimizing sin. Sin is a big deal. Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from our sin, and yet we make it smaller than what it really is. We like to shrink it down. We like to make up our own truths, distorting what it actually says. We like to convince ourselves that it's okay because everybody else is doing it. And we have to stop minimizing sin. We have to stop resisting the way of Jesus. What Jesus says goes. What would it look like, church, if we lived that out in our everyday lives? Like as we read the words of Jesus, we say, no, this is what Jesus said, so this is the way that I'm going to live my life. What Jesus says goes. That's what this church was having to realize, and that's what our church has to realize too. Jesus also says, stand out instead of blending in. We live in a world where two things can happen. We can influence or we can be influenced. Those are the two options. But following Jesus means that we are going to look different. It's as simple as that. Following Jesus means we surrender everything to him. Our marriages, our finances, our dreams, our time, our wants, our job, everything needs to bend its knee at the cross. Everything has to be filtered through this thought process of what does it look like to follow Jesus with these areas of my life. And then finally, he repeats his words in Smyrna in a new way to the church of Pergamum when he says, don't give up because victory is coming. Every letter in John's revelation ends with a motivation. And the images are different, but the focus is always the same, every single time. This is not the way that it's going to be. Jesus says, stand strong until the end. And for Pergamum, he uses imagery that would have been familiar to their church. So he says, I know that the food of idols looks appealing to you. I get it. I know that it would be easy for you to give in and to eat this food that you're being tempted with. It doesn't seem like a big deal. And honestly, it might save your physical life in the here and now. If you're worshiping Roman gods, you're probably not going to face the persecution that you're facing. But remember when I provided food for the Israelites? Remember when I sent manna from heaven and provided for them daily? That manna is yours for the taking as well. And then he finishes using this image of a white stone. White stones were used in a variety of ways in the ancient world. Juries used white stones to cast a vote if they believed someone was innocent. And white stones were also used as admission into some forms of public entertainment. So it's as if Jesus were saying, when you surrender your life to me, when you finally lay your life down at the cross, I'm going to give you a new name and a new heart. And you are innocent and you are in. It, it echoes Mark's word in Mark chapter 8 when, when Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for the gospel will save it. Do you want the world? 
great, you can have it. But you can't have the world and have Jesus too. Do you want Jesus? Hey, he died to make that happen. But you can't have Jesus and have the world too. And I want to finish today where we started, back in the church at Smyrna. It's, two, it's now the second century, um, early second century, and a man by the name of Polycarp is the pastor of the church there now. And Polycarp has a similar decision. He has to decide, am I going to follow the world or I'm going to follow Jesus? So the Roman officials come knocking on his door and they say, hey, you need to recant of your Christian beliefs and you need to bow before the emperor. Well, Polycarp refuses. And so he's dragged from his house in front of this massive group of people who all want him dead. And instead of turning away, instead of following the world, I love Polycarp's words at the end of his life. He says this, 86 years I have served Christ, nor has he ever done any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? To the crowd watching that day, as Polycarp suffered and died, it might have looked like he lost. But in losing the world, he was victorious in Christ. I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, we're going to have a time where you can come forward if you want to make a decision today. And this is a time for you, if you've never decided to follow Jesus, to lay everything down at his feet and to come and say, I want to follow you with my life, Jesus. Or maybe for you the decision is, I know that I've made compromises. I know that I need to turn back around to repent of those things and follow Jesus where he's calling me. Or maybe for some of you, it's just you need to talk to somebody about the pressures that you're facing in life, that you are in the fire right now, and it's too much for you to bear on your own. So in the next few minutes, as we sing our last song together, there will be some staff and elders up here. We'd love to talk. We'd love to walk with you in that next step. Let me pray for us, and after I pray, we'll have that time where we sing together. God, thank you. Thank you for these letters that were written to the church. And these letters were not just written to the ancient church. It was not just written to these seven churches. But if you were to take those seven churches and everything they were dealing with and place them at any time in the history of the world, they would still apply. They apply to us right now, God. God, help us when we're in the fire. Help us when we're facing all the pressures that pour down on us with the world around us. Help us to be faithful, God, even to the point of death. God, help us to look at the example of Polycarp. And when we're 86 years old, when we look back over our lives, we can say, man, I've tried every single day to wake up and to be faithful to Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much for the image of Jesus risen and reigning because Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming as we speak. He's promised that, God. We're so thankful, God. Help us to hold on to that when we're in the fire. We love you, Jesus. In your son's name I pray, amen.